This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Lena Jabaley, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Now, you are very unique to Better Reading, to the Better Reading podcast, because we've never really um, had someone on the podcast that doesn't have a book yet. Yeah. But I, as you know, I found you on Instagram and then I stalked you and then I tracked you down and here you are sitting here talking to me and I feel so privileged and lucky that you said yes to chatting with us. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you. That's that's really lovely. So Lena was brought up in the suburbs of Sydney to a Lebanese immigrant family and she started off her career as a secondary school teacher and worked her way up to school principal of an independent school. After giving up a career in education, her passion for food flourished. Growing up as a daughter of an immigrant and immersed in the world of clashing cultures, food became the most ideal way to link both worlds and form an Australian Lebanese identity that she was proud of or that she is proud of. Lena's got this fantastic Instagram project and it's called The Lebanese Plate. If you don't like it, go like it right now because it's fantastic. It's a visual journey to share Lena's love of food photography, food styling, and the actual beautiful food of the Middle Eastern cuisine, specifically Lebanese cuisine. So, Lena, I thought we had a little bit in common. I'm Lebanese-Australian, but I'm a lot I'm a lot older than you, but food has been integral in my life in terms of growing up. And a lot of people on this podcast know that uh, food, I think, have formed key kind of moments in my life. Like when we were little, taking a laffa to school was so unusual. I used to be teased. You know, um, my mother used to knit out cardigans. You know, there was six children. My mum was a seamstress too. Yeah. Yeah. And so all my life I wanted a machine knitted cardigan. Right. (laughs) But I had the, I had the plaids, you know, those ones that, that they do. And now what I would give for her to knit me one of those cardigans, you know. But one of the the loveliest story that I often tell about her is that we grew up in Glebe um, and lots of you know, uh, housing commission houses and homes, but very few migrants. And she would find things like, say, for instance, a vine in somebody's garden. Yeah. And she would send us there to pick the vines, but okay. to pick yeah. the leaves. Yeah, we would that. we would have to it's ask. It's a Lebanese mum thing to do. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> so we'd have to tap on the door. We'd always have to ask for permission, which we did. Yeah. And they were perplexed, like, you know, this is going way back. And they're just like, they don't even know why on yeah. earth we would want yeah. this weed, right? Yeah. And so we would take it home. And do you know, she would make a batch of mashi warani, which I love. Yeah. And then she would make a small batch and we would then take it over to the house that gave oh, us nice. the leaves. That's yeah. really lovely. So tell me about, you've come a little bit later than me. 
But tell me about your career into food. Being a principal must have been a huge job and how you got there and then you made that career move. So, I mean, the whole principal thing really lasted approximately a year. <laughs> um, I was in. You tried. <laughs> yeah, look, it's not that I couldn't do it. I I love a good challenge. You know, I'm willing to take anything on. And the people I was working for at the time, I was already doing quite a lot in the school. It was a developing school um, and I was there from fairly, you know, the beginning of the, the, the development of this particular school. So I learned a lot early on. <clears throat> and then within, say, year three of being there, I was already taking on a lot of leadership roles. When the school principal at the time left really suddenly, I was kind of already kind of a, you know, right-hand person doing a lot of, now that this was um, a school with a large population of immigrant, both immigrant and refugee students, non-English speaking background, it was an Islamic school as well. Um, The principal at the time came from the North Shore on paper, you read it, and this lady is amazing. She's written textbooks in her specialty field. She's amazing. But you popped her in that particular school way out in Western Sydney, fish out of water. She just didn't know what to do. She didn't understand the students. She didn't understand the community. She didn't understand the parents. And I was pretty much, she was relying on me to do all the difficult jobs that she couldn't get done. Um, so when when she up and left really suddenly, they were like, Lena, you're already doing a lot of this. And there was an educational consultant who was on board, amazing, amazing guy with full, full of experience. He said, I'll be right there to help you along the way. And I thought, what an amazing opportunity. I was a young teacher, so it was, you know, not, not that... Um, it was unique for me, you know, some, I was in my mid-30s mm. uh, to take on such a role, big role like that, and this was a K-10 to school. But I really trusted this consultant and we worked really closely and he was amazing, but unfortunately the school board were not. <laughs> I, I'd probably spend all day if I were to explain what went on there, but throughout that year things just got from bad to worse, I really felt like my children were also enrolled in the school, in the primary school, like my girls were young at the time. I had three girls. I decided to pull them out um, because I felt it was a becoming conflict of interest. I pulled them out and put them in, an, in another school separate to where I was just so that I could focus on my job and not have staff worry about that and how to treat them. It was really awkward. That was a separate issue, but then the the, the college board just were. Mm, no, I get it. It was, was it was not a nice situation to be in. Yeah, I felt like I was being I was being bullied. I ended up resigning. I resigned. Things just got worse because they felt like, how dare you do that to us? They felt like they took it really personal. I couldn't go back and. It was so bad I ended up at Fair Work Australia. It was so bad by the end of that year that the thought of going back to any other school was, for me, I got really anxious 
Yeah, it's very traumatic. Physically sick to yeah. think about it. Um, so I needed time away. Long story short, I, I needed something away from teaching just to kind of think about where do I want to go from here. Not even thinking I was going to leave teaching forever because, I mean, I was pretty good at it. I think I did a pretty good job, <laughs> you know, um, and I, I felt like I had a lot more to give. But from there I took up photography just as a hobby because I was so bored and I my whole adult life up until then, all I'd done was work, 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 and if I wasn't working, I had my three daughters. <laughs> so my girls were at school full time and I was like, well, what do I do? So I picked up the camera. I did this little short course just to, you know, just for fun. I really enjoyed it and then thought, you know, this could be something. I ended up enrolling into like a full-blown diploma of um, imagery at a private college in the city. I did that for a full year. I used to really love photographing kids and um, babies and so I started kind of, you know, experimenting with that a little bit until we did the food component of this particular course. And at the time, one of the assessments was to, you know, shoot a table of food, style it, all of that. But it, there had to be some kind of story to it. So, of course, being from a Lebanese background, loving Lebanese food, I thought that's where, you know, that's what I would do. And so... Part of it was doing some research and at the time there was very little great imagery of Lebanese food and I and I often think of Lebanese food, I mean, some of it looks amazing, but then there are also some dishes which we love and we know really well, but they're kind of like this ugly, delicious sort of mm. type of food that's, that's yeah. hard to photograph. And I kind of set that up for myself as a challenge. I thought I need to make Lebanese food in an image look as good as it tastes so that if someone looks at that image, they think that looks amazing. I want to try that. So, yeah, from there I just. Were you cooking? Were you a cook at that time? Not really. You know, I never grew up cooking. I was the youngest of six kids, a tad spoil what my older siblings would say by my dad more so my mum was more the you know disciplinarian <laughs> in the household if I didn't like what mum cooked which you know as a spoiled kid my dad would go up and get me like a shawarma wrap from the local takeout or whatever <laughs> you know yeah. and because I was so busy with work and stuff I never really experimented with cooking I always assumed Lebanese cooking was just too difficult and um, so I just didn't bother. So a lot of the cooking I did was really quick stir fries and pasta. But when I started with the food photography, I had to cook the Lebanese food. So I started asking more questions, asking mum, asking my older sisters. I have three older sisters who are one who's a year, just about a, above um, a year older than me. But I have a couple of other sisters who are, 10 to 15 years older than I am. Oh, right. So more like, you know, they've always been more like mum figures in my life. So I went back to them and I was like, how do you cook this? How do you cook that? And I started experimenting and realising, oh, this isn't as hard as I thought. And I 
started to think about, you know, all the dishes that I absolutely loved growing up and cooking them and, and then thought, well, I need to write this down. And I started documenting it. And I think in, it was in 2015, because my son, we, we then had a fourth child <laughs> a good nine years later after my youngest daughter. So he was born in 2015. And after he was born, I thought I'm not going to do, I don't like to say I regret it or that it was a mistake, but I just kind of, that's how life unfolded where, you know, my girls were young. I just automatically went back to work and I just kind of did, I rolled with the punches. But with my son, I thought I just, I didn't want to do that again. And I didn't feel like I needed to rush out to any kind of work either. So I wanted to just be at home with him. But then again, in saying that, I always need a challenge and something to keep my mind busy. And that's about that time that I took all that photography to Instagram and I started the Lebanese plate and posting more just to showcase the photography really. But then people were interested in the dishes and started asking for the recipes and that's when I started sharing the recipes as well and it just kind of blew up from there and it went. It's huge, yeah. Um, Um, And you've got, you do a lot of TV as well, don't you? Tell me about that. I am now doing, it's become more of a regular um, on the ABC Weekend Breakfast, which is nice that they keep calling me back and wanting me to come on and and chat about different food-related things, sometimes, you know, things that are trending on socials and It could be other recipes that I share with and I create some content for ABC Every Day as well, their online um, platform. I mean, that's that's been nice. Yeah, you're a bit of a superstar when it comes to Lebanese (laughs) cooking. So one of the things I noticed about you was very early on in the uh, genocide of the Palestinian people and there was a conversation about watermelon. Yes, now, I don't know if you saw this, but I saw a uh, post, I think it was uh, one of the f- American food magazines, and I can't remember which one, yeah. but they did a post on explaining the significance of watermelon. Right. And oh, I can't meant, didn't see that. Yeah, what it meant to Palestinians. And it was overwhelming. The response was overwhelmingly negative, people saying that they're anti-Semitic. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I couldn't get it out of my head how a fruit could be anti-Semitic, right? I mean, it's just extraordinary. And I found the article to be very informative. And coincidentally, then I saw, or because of the algorithm, I guess, I saw your video on the watermelon Talk to me about the significance of the watermelon uh, to Palestinian people and why you felt compelled to make that video. So so the watermelon, just, you know, to summarise, at a certain point it became illegal for the people of Palestine to act, to even display the Palestinian flag. They'd be abused, arrested, couldn't do it. So instead of um, as, a, as kind of a form of resistance, they started using the watermelon because the watermelon has the same colours that the Palestinian flag has, so the green on the outer and then, you know, the black in the pit and then the red flesh as well. And that's been used for a few, for a couple of, good couple of decades now. And the whole idea of something as simple as that, a piece of fruit, 
So yes, for the Palestinian people, that it has now this really strong significance of opposing the occupation and and their own silent um, resistance. You know, you, you constantly hear these people say, "Well, why don't they peacefully protest and and resist and so on?" Well, they have been. They have been, but nobody, and using the watermelon is a perfect example of that, but nobody is paying attention to it. And in making that video, I just thought it's it's the perfect, um, you know, I, I had this video where I was making this watermelon salad and I just thought that's the perfect video that would go with what I had to say. And and for me, I feel like, because even me, I, I, I admit, for years, we've been silenced on the issue of Palestine out of fear of people calling us anti-Semites and anti-Jew. And it's gone. I, I find that that response and that argument just so lazy. And we need to move beyond that. Mm. Because living in Australia, I can make judgment or you know, have an opinion, even a negative opinion on things that our government are doing and I can oppose that and I can speak up about it, but it doesn't mean that I hate Australians <laughs> or that doesn't mean that I'm against. It's it's just a ridiculous idea, the thought that if you are criticising the Israeli government, that makes you an anti-Jew and that for me goes completely against what I stand for. It goes completely against what I'm taught, not just morally but religiously as well. And I think that's something that a lot of people are failing to do is they're failing to listen. Mm. And I think back to teaching days where I often would say to my students, I know you can hear me, I know you can hear my voice, but are you actually listening? And, you know, students would say, well, what are you talking about? Same thing, you know, and I I would explain to them, no, it's not the same thing. You need to listen so that you can comprehend. And many of us are just hearing sounds and we're waiting to respond. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know, I have the same guilt, you know, I'm Lebanese Australian, I have the same guilt that I didn't know to the extent that the terrorisation of the Palestinian people has been going on for years. And I do have guilt around that. And now it's all coming to the open. But do you know, 
when I think about how a piece of fruit or how a fruit, like a watermelon, is representative of a movement and a people, that says to me a lot about the people. Don't yeah. you think? That yeah. says to me a lot about the people, how yeah. culturally they are thankful and grateful for what they have. Yeah. And, you know, you see so many things that represent other people that are, you know, harsh and, and meaningless, you know. Yeah. And to think that a, a fruit like that says so much because I had heard too that they tried to ban the watermelon. I mean, crazy, yes, crazy. Yeah, they did. They, they did. Yeah. And also too, and you would have seen this, some of the footage with the power turned off and with the internet turned off, you know, they seem to have a penchant for, um, you know, murdering in the dark for some reason. They don't want us to see or anybody to see. But the resilience of the Palestinian people um, and how they're making those clay ovens to cook their bread, like they find a way, don't they? And that has really touched me in so many ways. And that's what made me want to talk to you too about how, you know, food shapes who we are, you know, like talk to me about the response that you get to your page and how, because you've got thousands of followers and what you're doing is simply, simply sharing food recipes. Yeah. And I could, I could just do that, right? I could just share my um, recipes, just share those images, these pretty, you know, nicely set out aesthetic videos and and whatever else, and just pretend that there's nothing happening out there in the world. But for me, that seems, I've always had this, I'm always torn with social media and I've constantly had this love-hate relationship for Instagram and I feel like it's just so inauthentic in so many different ways and I think it's made us into a people who have become really self-absorbed and materialistic and just all of these things that I just don't, want to be associated with and when I started posting and I started this page I never I never started it with the intention to grow into this platform with all these you know um followers and whatever else I couldn't that came with it and it's amazing and I and I appreciate it so much to have that audience and to be able to build that platform for myself but at the same time I hate it too because with it comes this expectation that automatically I fall under this influencer title, which I think comes with a lot of negative connotations as well. And for me at this point in time, I'm just like I need to move myself away from that because what are these influencers influencing us to do? Like are they making us better people? Are they making us, you know, giving us opportunity to think, to explore, to learn? And I think perhaps my teaching background as well comes into that where for me sharing the recipes is for me teaching. (laughs) So I'm still hanging on to that. But then I think there's more to it than that. And because I taught in a lot of schools where there were large populations of kids from Arab background, um, some Muslim, some not, um, but definitely large populations of kids from immigrant backgrounds and also refugees as well. So I know and understand, and having grown up in Australia too, I know and understand what it feels like to be an outsider, so to speak, 
even though I was born in Australia, brought up, I now have children, three of which are pretty much adult, two are technically adults, one is almost there. They are still viewed in the same way that I was viewed growing up. Mm. And I feel that living in Australia, we are at a point in time beyond where we need to move past this white Australia concept. Using food, it's, a, it's something that connects people, something that we all have in common. And I really felt like this would be an easy way to connect with people that even I would not necessarily have opportunity to connect with, but also give other people opportunity to connect with just a, I think, <laughs> I'm a typical Australian living, trying to live her life. Like there's nothing, I may dress different. I have different religious beliefs. People have complete, you know, silly, mis- you know, you know, maybe silly is the wrong word to use. I guess they just believe what they're told through the media without having ever spoken to a fellow Australian Muslim. And I'm, as much as I'm proud of my Lebanese heritage, I'm also very proud to be Australian too. It's the, it's the country that I know and love. I've been back to Lebanon, but I would never live there. I also don't belong there either. I remember you're Australian. I went yeah. back there, I was considered a foreigner. Yeah. The, the Lebanese are very open about that. Mm-hmm. They would call you straight to, the, to your face. They, mm-hmm. they would call us. Um, Ajenib, if you, you know. That I we're do from- know that word, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and so that for me was like a real eye-opener because I, all through high school years, it's like go back to where you came from, go back, and I'm like finally going back to where I came from <laughs> and go back to where you belong. And they're now telling me, no, actually you don't belong here and I recognise very quickly that I don't belong there. So for me, I really need to st- to start exploring, well, where do I belong? You know, who am I? What do I stand for? And how can I make a unique identity for myself? And I really had that, I realised, you know, that it's okay to take bits and pieces of, you know, my Australian upbringing as well as, you know, the Lebanese heritage that I have and form this unique, special identity that I can be proud of and pass on to my own kids as well. Do you know, I want to just say something too that will alleviate your um, your doubt about Instagram. I have the same concerns with it. However, I have seen the power of it being used positively and with my business in particular, Facebook connects a lot of people that live in rural and remote areas or people that just, you know, are at home and aren't mobile. They have a wonderful connection with us and our page, particularly through our live segments. And, you know, often I'm out and about and somebody will run up and give me a hug and say, you know, I tune in every week. I love, you know, hearing the recommendations. And we wouldn't have had that without Facebook. But also with the the, um, genocide of the Palestinians, I have felt really, really let down by traditional masthead and traditional media and the people that, and I don't know if you've done this, but the people that really I'm getting my news source from are people on the ground in Palestine, four or five journalists, amazing young people who are using Instagram to tell the world what's happening. Now, Instagram hasn't been 
you know, that well behaved around it. However, those kids started off with very little followers, they, those journalists, and yeah. now, you know, they've got 16 million, 15 million. They're bigger than the New York Times. They're bigger than the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah. And that to me has been fantastic in truth-telling in terms yeah. of the genocide because we're not getting the truth from traditional media. Yeah. So that's where you can kind of rest easy and think there yeah. are some positive aspects to it. Oh, uh, yeah, look, I, 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 although I, I make note of the negatives, there are yes. 100% definitely yeah. on the flip side. There are many positives to being on social media. For someone like myself to be able, like who would have ever listened to I don't say that as in other stories I have to tell are really important and these amazing stories, but I sometimes feel like I have something to say and I feel privileged that I'm able to, you know, make that opinion known on the platform that I built for myself because reality is mainstream media would not have given me, someone like me, a platform to speak. The most viral um I did a segment, it was last Ramadan with ABC News Breakfast and I pitched them topics and Ramadan happened to be coming up and I thought what a great opportunity because I've always felt like in this, you know, we're trying to be inclusive and, you know, celebrate different faiths and and whatever else, I feel like still things like Ramadan are an afterthought. It's like, oh, Ramadan began today, let's talk about that, some little, you know, general article that's been spoken about so many times before. So this last Ramadan, because I I had those platforms where I can speak on certain certain things from my life that I practice, I thought let me pitch this and that would, you know, with every ABC Every Day, she was like the editor, she's like, yeah, that would be amazing. I did a couple of stories and recipes for them. And then I also took that to the weekend breakfast segment. That's been one of my most viewed segments ever. I think it's like over 2 million views now on TikTok or something. Like it just blew blew out of the water. I was really surprised by that. But then I was thinking about, well, why did that particular segment go off in, in a way that the others didn't and I know sometimes especially TikTok it's quite random where where things go viral and, and things that don't just looking through the comments either it was other people from my own community who were just amazed that I was having this very casual conversation about Ramadan and around the foods we eat and how we celebrate and so on and it just seemed you know they weren't judging you know the hosts weren't judgmental they were, they were really, they seemed really, and they were very sense. they were very sincere and wanting to know more. So people crave that. People from my community really crave that to see someone, not necessarily me as an individual, but someone who looks like me, dresses like me. Eats like me, you know, exactly. it's all of that. Yeah, on their yeah. TV screen, you know, on mainstream mm-hmm. television, free-to-air TV, speaking about something that is so familiar to them, that was one thing. But then the other end of the spectrum was also, wow, you speak English really well. That was really common right throughout all the comments. And I just thought to myself, even now, in 2023, people still, simply because of the way I dress, 
people assume that I've just come off a boat or, you know, from migrated from somewhere. They don't, their automatic opinion isn't that I'm just another Australian living her life, you know, Mm. and I think that needs to change and that's not going to change until we see more people like myself speaking on topics other than the stereotypical topics. So don't just call me to talk about Ramadan. I feel like I have, I and there are many more like me, we Mm. have so much more to offer. We have knowledge, we have education, and we should be you know, listen Part to of the mainstream, you know, exactly. is what it should be. It shouldn't feel odd um, or unusual to see someone who looks like me speak English well and speak on a topic and know what they're talking about, you know. Lena, we're out of time, but what I want to say is thank you for the way that you kind of silently protest through your food. I don't know how silent it is because you've got a great audience, but I guess the gentleness about it is just so powerful and food does that and I think you do that so beautifully. And I think we're going to speak to you in the near future because I am sure you will have a book and we'll have you in to talk about that. Lena, thank thank you. you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.